0: Stands, we
1: sing hymn number 14. Kneel at the cross. Christ will meet you there. Hymn number fourteen, stand we sing. this morning, Tracy, would you pray for us? And thank you, you may be seen unless you celebrate a birthday and anniversary, we'd like to recognize you at this time.
2: Well, good morning. We're excited to be here again uh, Sunday morning and please be in prayer for pastor as he's he ditched us. He's on vacation, uh, but he'll be back Tuesday, Lord willing, if they decide to come back. So uh, pray for him. Uh, we have a ladies meeting uh, coming up October 19th at 630 p.m. Uh, it says we'll have soup, sandwiches and salads. There's a sign up sheet in the Facebook in the church Facebook group. If You have any questions, please see Ms. Cindy Bloyer. Uh, We have Brother Joel Travis and his wife coming. They'll be with us on Wednesday, October 25th. And we will have a teen activity Friday, October 27th. It'll be an all-nighter here at church. There'll be no cost. Please drop your kids off at 8 and pick them up at 8. And if you want to pick them up earlier than 8, like at 7 or 7.30, go for it. I'm totally for that. Um, We have a Fall Praise Festival at uh, uh, Foster Foster Farm. It'll be Saturday, October 28th. Dinner will be ready at 5 p.m., um, there will be a sign-up sheet in the foyer. Now, I don't think is that that's not Mexican time, five p.m. Right? Okay, because that usually means food won't start till seven. But this is actually at five. Okay, and we have a teen fundraiser. Uh, they, we will host a lunch on October 29th to raise funds for youth camps. So there'll be more um, details for that. But there will be a sign-up sheet on the back table in the foyer. Uh, just some prayer requests. Pastor asked me to bring forward would be Miss Dixie Hope. She's having surgery on Monday, so we can have her in prayers. As well as Brother Jeff Beaver's dad. I guess they're moving him to a facility now, so we can go ahead and be in prayer for them. And uh, the Lord gives them wisdom and guidance through all that. So we'll just have another song, and then we'll be dismissed to our Sunday school classes for the foster.
0: Sing hymn number 323 More About Jesus. We'll sing the first and the last verses. Uh-huh. Class, I probably don't have enough handouts, but I do have a handout for this class. Um, James or
1: Richard, can you grab those off the back table? We'll get those handed out.
0: All right. And while you're waiting for those, you can be turning to the Book of Esther. We've started a study as of last week in the Book of Esther, called "God's Got This." I'm thankful we serve a God who certainly is in control, and he has a plan for each of our lives, and we're thankful that he is working, even when we don't see it. Uh, All right, so we have to finish up lesson number one. Might be a little confusion there on the lessons. We need to finish up lesson number one. We'll do that quickly, and then we will get into lesson number two. So lesson number two is the main one you'll need, um, but we will finish up
1: lesson number one as well. Everyone's got theirs now.
0: All right. Just to give some background for those that were not here last week or were not in this class, um, looking at just an overview, an introduction uh, in lesson number one at the Book of Esther and what it's all about. And and basically, we can sum it up as this: that uh, it's it's a story about God's providence. Uh, you know, God has has a plan for what he wants to accomplish in this earth, and he has a plan, certainly, as we look at the book of Esther, as he's, he's dealing with the nation of Israel, and he wants to um, do a work in their life, and he wants to guide them and direct them, and there are times that we look in the Old Testament, and certainly from the Jews' perspective, they would they would ask the question, you know, well, has God forgotten us? Has God not leading us? and Certainly this could have been a time during the book of Esther as we see uh, the events unfold where they could have asked those questions and wondered if God is truly working. And I'm thankful as we understand the story and we, we see the end of it that we know that God certainly was working and He was, had a plan all along. And, and it reminds us of this simple truth that we must have faith and trust in God knowing that He has a plan for us. And though we can't see into the future, we can't see what that plan looks like, we need to trust Him and follow Him to direct us in our life. So we looked at uh, last week, just quickly, an overview of this, this book, and, and we would sum it up uh, this way in saying that the book of Esther, it's not really a story about Esther. not a story about the Jews. not a story about Mordecai. It's really a story about God. It's his story, and we looked at that, uh, and we can see that it reminds us that as we look at the Bible, as we look at anything that happens here on this earth, anything that happens to us, it's a result of his story. It is his story. He is the creator. He is the creator of the universe. He is the creator of us, and the the book of Esther, we can see that this is his story, and it's a story of providence, as I already said. Uh, God sees in advance. He can... He knows what's going to happen, and He is going to move in ways to make things happen in such a way that is in His divine will. Not only do we see that it's a story of providence, but I'm thankful that it was a story of grace. Now, I'll quickly get through these slides, because we went through all those last week. We went through the the history here of of the rulers, and it brings us to the point where Ahasuerus, or otherwise known as Xerxes, is now reigning here in the Persian Empire, and he, this is a vast empire, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we get into lesson number two. But he's ruling now at the time of the book of Esther, and he's another wicked ruler. And we're, again, we're going to do, get into some of that as well. But I'm thankful in the midst of wickedness, there's a story of grace. And God's grace is certainly uh, relevant here in the story of Esther as he was gracious again towards the Jews. So how did he show his grace to his people? Well, he showed it to them in his remembrance, grace in God's remembrance. Uh, Surrounded by this Persian culture, many of the Jews in Sushan may have forgotten about their God, but God had not forgotten them. And I'm thankful today that he has not forgotten us as well. We have a lot that's going on in our culture, and our society today that is against God, it's against biblical principles, but I'm thankful that we have a God who is still in control and He still remembers us. So we see grace in His remembrance, we see grace in God's purpose. And again, as I've said over and over, He's got a purpose and a plan for each of us. He had a purpose and a plan for the Jews that He was working here in the book of Esther. So this is His story. But then we see His focus on His saints. As I said before, the the book of Esther is a story about God, um, and specifically as God is working through the lives of those that are captive of Israel. So to fulfill God's plan here, His chastening work on Israel, God raised up Babylon and later conquered by Persia, and that's where it gets us to the point we're at now, the Persian empire. Uh, so he raised them up as a punishment uh, for the nation of Israel for turning their back on God. So it doesn't mean he's, he's turned his back on Israel, but he's trying to bring them to a place where they'll once again serve him and follow him and do those things that he desires them to do. So he's focusing on his saints and the, the committed of Israel. That brings us quickly then to his, the third point where we need to finish up lesson number one today, and that is his salvation, His salvation. So as we look through the scripture, the, the thread that we see here is the, the story of God's redemptive work, and I'm thankful that God is a redeeming God, and you ought to be thankful today as well that He's a redeeming God. None of us are worthy of heaven. None of us are worthy of salvation, but God in His great love for us seeks to redeem us. And then as we are saved and we seek to serve him, we ought to be ever thankful for that. Also, when we find ourselves or a a brother or sister in Christ that has fallen into sin, what is the the work of the, the saints? The saints then need to be praying and seeing that that person would be restored. See, God is a a redeeming God, and he's a restoring God. That is his work, and that's what he desires in the midst of every sinful heart, to redeem them, to restore them. First of all for salvation. After salvation, if sin happens again, what's his work? To restore. And we ought to have the same attitude and the same mindset. Not to tear down, not to gossip, not to backbite but to be praying that they would be restored to the fellowship of Christ. So we see His salvation is so uh, important in our lives, and we're so thankful for it, but the redemptive thread is seen all throughout Scripture. And in the story of Esther, we see God's redeeming power fully on display. So as we look, work through this, uh, this, these lessons over the next few weeks, we want to understand some things about it as we look more thoroughly at the various pieces to the plot of Esther's story. But in this introductory lesson, we'd see the big picture look at how God displayed his salvation through Esther. So we want to look at two different uh, aspects of this. First of all, specifically, we understand that in the story of Esther, that this salvation was focused on the children of Israel. Mordecai uh, had taken a stand for God, and he, when he refused to bow down to God's enemy, Haman, or to worship Another person. And we see this in Esther chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman to the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not. Nor did him reverence. Now, you understand the story, and you know that this stirred up much indignation in the heart of Haman against Mordecai and his refusal to bow. So, as a result, Haman then was determined not just to kill Mordecai, but all of the Jews. And then he plotted to have Mordecai die a public, humiliating death on the gallows that Haman built specifically for this purpose. Yet we understand there's an amazing plot twist here as as God's uh, providential irony takes place. The king ultimately promoted Mordecai to Haman's position and sentenced Haman to die the death that he had prepared for Mordecai. And we'll get into more of that later on in the lessons and we we see how the, the things twist and God begins to work things out for His purpose and His will. So, as we look at Mordecai and Esther, um, and they proposed a plan that ultimately saved the Jews from the genocide of Haman's plan. So, who was it that protected Mordecai? Who was it that uh, devised all of this, if you will? Well, we understand it to be God. God protected Mordecai, and it was God who promoted Esther to be queen, and God had a plan the whole time to save the Jews from Haman. He places His people in the right place, at the right time, to bring about his purpose. So in this case, it brought about salvation for the Jews by the the, means of saving them from genocide by Haman's evil plan. But I'm thankful that he's not only focused on the Jews today, but he's focused on the entire world. Even as the Jews were set to be destroyed, so mankind was sentenced, sentenced to face death as a judgment for sin. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, according to 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. But His longsuffering to us were, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So there's an amazing truth here. That just as God had a plan to physically save Israel, even before Persia existed, so God also had a plan to save the world from their fallen nature from their from the state that they are in and sin so god knew that man would sin and before the foundation of the world was created he already had a plan to redeem mankind so jesus himself took upon human flesh and came to this earth and paid sin's price through his own death on calvary's cross 1 Peter 1.18 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So he now offers salvation from the penalty of sin as a free gift. He's not willing that any should perish, but he's offering it, inviting people to place their trust in him alone to save him to save us from our sins. So this is the introductory lesson and in understanding the overview of the book of Esther. But I'm excited to get into the details of it. So let's turn our attention now to lesson number two. And we see that we're going to focus now on the king. How can I get rid of these songs? I need to get to lesson number two. If you guys can do that. You can start singing if you want to. Lesson number two, we're focusing now on our attention on King Ahasuerus, and we're going to understand some things about him as we begin in chapter number one, uh, verses one through nine. Let's read here this portion of scripture and get our context here and, and pay attention to things that are going on and things that are mentioned here That as he's described and his kingdom is described, and we're going to draw our attention to some of those things as we we go through this lesson. Let's begin in, in verse number one. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 170 and 20 provinces. And in those days when the, king, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which is in Sushan, the palace. In the third year of his reign he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even in hundred and four score days. How many of us can throw a party that long? And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Sushan, the palace both under the great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble? The beds were of gold and silver, upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black and marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law, none did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. We see much is going on here and we can see that there's, um, I I guess, people doing what they want to do. (laughs) They're living it up and they're living the high life, if you will. Uh, So As we turn our attention here and understanding, again, the focus of this this book is showing us God's story, His providence, and we understand what that word providence means. It means that He sees before, He can see into the future, so He understands what His plan is, and He's going to work to bring about that plan. So when the Lord sent the Jews into Babylonian captivity... He already saw the day that the Babylonians would fall to the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire would then have a king who would allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem to begin the building of the temple. And this was King Cyrus. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22, we see account of this story. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people, the Lord his God, be with him, and let him go up. So when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, the Jews could not see how there homeland would ever see restoration and that's that's the way we are in our finite minds when something tragic happens to us we don't see a way out and we don't see how God can work but I'm thankful that God can work in the midst of even terrible difficult circumstances and work it for our good so God here has a plan of restoration for Israel even though they could not see it sometimes God will even use wicked men to accomplish his purposes King Ahasuerus was the grandson of King Cyrus, and during Ahasuerus' reign from 485 to 465 B.C., he ruled over 127 provinces. Undoubtedly, this king was the most powerful man in the world at that time. Ahasuerus had many accomplishments, but none of them happened without God uh, overruling in all his affairs. God was working even in the midst of this wicked king. Though Ahasuerus was powerful, he was limited. How was he limited? Well, remember that every ruler in the world today is limited by the sovereign hand of God. I'm thankful for that. Every ruler is limited by the sovereign hand of God. So let's look at this uh, and understand a little bit about King Ahasuerus and his kingdom and how he set it up and uh, some characteristics of it. So let's look here at the realm of the Persian Empire the realm of the Persian Empire. So even the the vastness of this Persian Empire, as great as it was, it was finite. And how was it finite? It was limited by the hand of God, as we had already mentioned. So let's look at it geographically first of all. The Persian Empire was great in many ways. One of the most obvious ways was in its size. As we mentioned, it was 127 provinces, It included Judah, and these provinces spread from India, which would include modern-day Pakistan, to Ethiopia. This was the largest world empire up to this time. Uh, As this empire expanded geographically, it also expanded militarily. In Daniel 7, Persia was represented by a bear, an animal that is awkward and ponderous, killing its brute force and strength. So the Persian army was a brutal and it was a strong army. And when Ahasuerus, commonly known in the Greek as Xerxes, fought the battle uh, in, in Salamis in 480 BC, he had 100,000 soldiers and 1,000 ships. And he had a standing army at that time of 2.5 million. So quite an army. Uh, so he had much military force uh, to guard and protect his kingdom and continue to expand that kingdom, if you will. So it was vast and it was mighty. Um, and it was big in size geographically. Well, let's turn our attention then to its monetary value. Not only was this empire strong geographically, but it was also impressive monetarily. Through the empire's successful military conquests, you can imagine much of the gains that they would uh, incur incur there as they overtook these areas. So the rulers had acquired significant wealth, and, and King Ahasuerus then used his wealth to promote himself. As a wicked king would, he begins to take those possessions and then begins to promote himself. And we see this in the text that we read here this morning in chapter number 1. And by, first of all, he prepares this great feast. So it's shown in a feast in verses 3 through 4 of the text that we read. So he, he puts on this elaborate feast as a public display of his wealth and all that would attend. So the purpose of this feast was for the king to show all the riches of his glorious kingdom. So it was basically a show-off session. <laughs> look at all my goods. Look at what all I possess. Uh, so he was, uh, had his glorious kingdom on display. This celebration was for all the king's leaders, his princes and his nobles, and it lasted for six months. Now that's quite an undertaking just to put on a party for one day, but let alone for six months. Many scholars believe that Ahasuerus was bringing his political leaders to entice them into another war against Greece. We learn from this ordeal that there are times someone offers a gift or a meal just for personal gain. That never be said of us, but we understand that it takes place in our world. It certainly was taking place here. We should beware of being lured by flattery or bribery into something we would not otherwise believe to be prudent or right. Proverbs 23 reminds us of this truth where it says in verse 1, When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee. Be wise, understand the motives behind it, and put a knife to thy throat if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. So the king loved to gloat uh, by this apparent... um, feast that he had this apparent greatness to all he wanted to gloat that greatness to them and he wanted others to notice how impressive he was and we see that demonstrated in the personalities uh, that we encounter and again might it not be said of us but this is certainly prevalent where we see this this comparison game that goes on and you want to show yourself to have something just a little bit better than someone else. And this was certainly the attitude of King Ahasuerus, As he's showing his greatness, and he wants others to be impressed by him. So we may not have a vast empire. I don't think any of us do. So we don't have a vast empire, or the resources to throw a six-month party, but if we're not careful, we may resemble this king at times in our attitude. We are prone to desire attention and honor, And lack of recognition often angers us and may cause us to become resentful and bitter. Again, we must understand as a child of God, it's not about us, it's about Him. And our lives ought to be a reflection of Him and pointing others to Him that they might know Him as their personal Savior. So at this feast, we see the worst of the flesh. This was a party for the king to show off his power. So the money was seen in the feast and the ability to put on this six-month feast and this This party, but it's also shown in the material possessions. If you paid attention to this as we read through the text, verse 6 and 7 speaks of it specifically as we see the possessions uh, in this kingdom. Notice uh, the different colors that were used to decorate the palace. And as it says here in verse 6, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold And silver, upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black and marble, and they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse, one from another, not one cup was the same, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. So the palace at Shushan was undoubtedly unique. Archaeological studies done there have verified its extravagance. There was ivory imported from Ethiopia and India adorned in this structure. The blue and white shouted of the king's royal status to all attending the banquet. Outside the palace, observers could see the glistening of this building even from a distance. Inside this palatial structure, the king had three separate banquets, one for the key military leaders and officers, and one was for the men of Sushan, and one was for the women. All of these facts point to this, uh, truth and understanding that this king was very wealthy this monarchy had attained many precious metals and resources from the vast regions of the conquered territories his banquet his possessions boasted of his wealth to all present at this banquet so when we see this wicked ruler then uh, who seems to have the wealth uh, that the world uh, desires all of this is at his disposal we must not be intimidated, for we serve someone far greater. And as we live in this world, and this culture today, and uh, there, are, there are many who are turning against Christianity and the Bible truths that we hold dear to, don't be discouraged. Don't be intimidated. We still serve a God who is in control, and He rules over all. And Hacerus was a wealthy military leader. There's no doubt about it, but he was not a threat. Get this, he was not a threat to the plans of God. Might I say, any person in power today, whether it be in the United States or around the world, is not a threat to our Almighty God. God knew all along how he would use King Ahasuerus in the bigger sequence of the story that he had planned for Israel. So we see this kingdom, it's analyzed geographically, it's analyzed monetarily, but let's also look at it analyzed prophetically. Here's a picture of the the palace. Analyzed prophetically. As noted earlier, during the Babylonian Empire, Daniel had prophesied that Persia would rise up as a great bear. And if you've done a study in the book of Daniel, you see that in chapter 7 and verse 5 where he says, "...and behold another beast." A second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. So this is the, the second empire that will rise. We have the Babylonian empire, and then we have the Persian empire as the, the second empire that Daniel sees. Ahasuerus may have thought that no one was greater than he was. As he looks around all the kingdoms, he sees that his is the greatest, his is the biggest, and his has the most money, and his has the biggest military. God was using Ahasuerus to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that amazing that God can work in the midst of wickedness? But understand this, that's, that's what he has to work with here on this earth, his wickedness. It's all around us. Matter of fact, we were born with it. So he has to work in the midst of of sin and he asked to to bring a means of an opportunity for salvation through Jesus Christ, an opportunity to work through then the saved individuals to perform his will, and he also works in the lives of unsaved to perform his will. It's amazing what God can do. Though this king had become the most powerful human being on the planet, it was not without the Lord's sanctioning. The Lord was the one who allowed him to ascend to the throne, and the Lord was the one who fully intended to bring him down so god knew all along what his plan was so we see in the in the realm of prophecy where king ahasuerus is right now he doesn't see what's going about to happen to him he doesn't see how god's going to work in the midst of his kingdom to bring about salvation for the children of israel not only do we see it prophetically but we see it analyzed scripturally the bible has much to say about rulers who reject god And in any conflict of God versus man, who wins? Well, God always wins. God is always the winner. For instance, consider these people in the Bible who learned that God is stronger than their greatest intentions. Pharaoh had to learn this lesson in Egypt as God proved his might through the ten plagues and then drowning Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. Nebuchadnezzar, he had to learn this lesson as well in Babylon when he was humbled from his pride and driven away from the men of his kingdom to live with the animals and to eat the grass. Belshazzar learned this lesson at his blasphemous banquet when he saw the finger of God writing on the wall. I would like to have been there for that story and seen that happen and see the look on his face as God was writing on the wall. Sennacherib learned this is at the gates of Jerusalem learned this lesson at the gates of Jerusalem when the angel of the Lord smote his 185 thousand troops just by his presence, just by showing up. Herod Agrippa the I learned this as he was dying, being eaten by worms after receiving glory that belonged to God. so there were many in the Bible that learned this lesson that God always wins and when this life is done when this world is done know this that God comes out victorious God is the winner and if we're on his side and if we're saved by the grace of God we are victorious as well and as we analyze Ahasuerus scripturally we recognize that he did not submit himself to the authority of God he was in no ways in submission to God he thought he was the ultimate authority and his pride would eventually bring his downfall So we must remember that all authority comes from God, and that only Jesus Christ is Lord. There can only be one Lord, and Jesus Christ is the Lord. So one day every leader will bow to Jesus. Philippians 2.9 says this, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. So this is God, the Almighty God. He says, if you are to look to someone who is in authority... uh, who is predominant? Who is the one that you need to look to and is, and call Lord? This is it. Pay attention. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we need to be Christians about the purpose of glorifying our Heavenly Father, and bringing the name of Jesus before those on this earth, presenting Him as Lord, because He truly is the Lord, established by God the Father. So many leaders in America today have forsaken the guiding biblical principles of men like President George Washington. Now we can look at the life of George Washington and understand that he was guided by biblical principles. Remember, he is the one who said, I cannot tell a lie. Uh, He understood that it was a sin to tell a lie, and he took it to heart, and he he wanted to be honest. So he said this in his Thanksgiving proclamation in 1789. It says this, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor, pragmatism rather than conviction is often the lamp that guides many modern politicians. I'd like to go back and be under President George Washington, wouldn't you? A man who was guided by biblical truth, guided by Scripture, and he allowed that then uh, to help him and aid him in making the decisions for this country. Boy, we need we need leaders like that today. While it is discouraging to subject ourselves... Unto, Two ungodly leaders, we must recognize that their time is temporary and controlled by Almighty God. No matter who is in the Oval Office or any seat of prominence, remember this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if He chooses to use corrupt kings, presidents, or rulers to accomplish His will, He certainly can. So may we as Christians never forget that we are on the winning side because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. So the Persian power was vast but the power of God has no limits. So there was limitation on the Persian Empire. Again, only 127 provinces. Only had a certain amount of money. Only had a certain amount of military power. But God is the ruler of the universe. He has all power. And he has everything at his beckoning call. Whatever he would need. So I think it would do us well to put our faith and trust in Him and allow Him to guide our lives. So the realm of the Persian Empire is vast. Let's look then uh, more specifically at the king. We understand that he was a wicked ruler, and King Ahasuerus uh, was a wicked ruler because he had a wicked heart. That's no great statement there. Because of the wickedness in his heart, then he ruled wickedly. Notice that the story of Esther, what it reveals about his heart, as we continue reading in verse 10 of chapter 1. It says this, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Arbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha. Abagtha some good names here. Zethar and Carcass. like to be named Carcus the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king. Now understand, he's drunk with wine, <laughs> so he's going to make some decisions here in this state. So verse 11 says, To bring Vashti the queen before the king with the royal, crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. So we already revealed some things about King Ahasuerus. He was prideful, he was boastful, and he liked to show off what he had. Now, understand now where this is going to turn, and it's, it's uh, a sad state of events is how this is going to turn, but now, as the king, understand that he can pretty much bid whatever wife he would want or the women that he would want. So he he's, has a queen, Vashti, and, and the Bible tells us that uh, she was beautiful. And he wanted to, again to, in his prideful uh, state of his heart, if you will, show her off. So, th- this was the scene of the feast, and it reveals four wicked conditions that uh, we see in King Ahasuerus' heart. The first condition we see is that of, of adulterous. He was adulterous, adulteress, and we're going to get into some of that here a little more and explain what all was going on. He was also an alcoholic, he was angry. And he was arrogant. These four sins were prevalent in the Persian Empire, and they still bring down men and women today. So Ahasuerus' wicked heart led him to issue a disgusting and illicit command. So this illicit command, let's, let's see what he does here. Historians and Bible commentators tell us that Ahasuerus had a harem that housed young women chosen to be kept for the king's immoral lust. John Butler said this about him Ahasuerus could not control his passions in regard to women. He had a large harem and kept adding to it. So Ahasuerus was a king that had built up a great citadel in Sushan, the palace. Yet he couldn't build his own character. Or he couldn't build his own character because he had failed to control his passions. So he was a man ruled by his lusts. Whatever he desired, that's what he went after. And how was this, uh, I guess, pushed along? Well, we understand the, what alcohol can do. So, as we see this behavior, it's encouraged. We, the Bible says that he was uh, he was been drinking wine, and so he was encouraged by this alcohol for this illicit command. So, after seven days of drinking at the banquet, Ahasuerus was in high spirits from the wine, and we are reminded that alcohol leads to a breakdown of the control of your own spirit. So you're not cognizant of what you're doing. You're, you're not making the best decisions in that state. And Proverbs has much to say about that. But in chapter 16 and verse 32, it says this about, about this. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. The Bible tells us that it's wise for us to control our spirit, to allow our spirit to be tempered by the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us. Not to be ruled by any other. So as alcohol enters into the body, it begins to have an effect upon our spirit. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight says this, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. So when a man is given over to alcohol and lust, he will make wicked demands of others. And in this case, Ahasuerus demanded that his wife, his, uh, the queen, be paraded before all the leaders to show off her beauty. So, I don't think we have to say a whole lot about the effects of alcohol. I believe we understand that today. And we know that it's dangerous on so many levels, and God even tells us in the Word of God that we're prohibited from drinking it and partaking of it. So the nation of Israel did not drink strong drink during their wilderness pilgrimage. And if you're interested in that, we can see in Deuteronomy chapter 29, they were not drunk with wine or strong drink, it says there the priests were instructed not to drink wine or strong drink while serving in the tabernacle in Leviticus chapter 10. The Nazarites were forbidden from drinking not only wine, but the skin or the seeds of the grape. So we see that they're just to stay as far away from it as possible. Numbers Chapter 6 tells us of the duty there of the Nazarites. So the Bible warns us repeatedly against drunkenness and the way to avoid drunkenness is to avoid that first drink, to stay away from it altogether. And then that famous verse that we know Proverbs chapter twenty and verse one wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. There's a proverb that says this first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man i'm sure we've all been affected by alcoholism whether it's a, someone close in our family friend relative but we understand the wickedness of it the effects that it can have on a person and it's sad to see a society that's driven by it and i don't i, I don't understand it even in the business realm you know it, the hype about it, I don't understand it all. But they get hyped up about, oh, let's go out drinking and all these things. But uh, I don't understand why they would want the effects of it. But that's the way sin is, and that's the way the wicked heart is. Um, but as Christians, we ought to understand what the Bible says about it and take a firm stand against it and, and not be a part of it. And we, we see how uh, this affected King Ahasuerus and the, and the decisions that he was making and what he's getting ready to do here with Queen Vashti. So the consumption of alcohol brings thoughts, actions, and habits that in the right state of mind, you don't want to have. Proverbs twenty-one seventeen says, He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. So the king's wicked behavior was encouraged by alcohol, and this alcohol then promoted this next step here, his irrational anger. And We're going to have to stop there today. As we uh, see here this King Ahasuerus and his wickedness and as he begins to set the stage here of what's going to take place in the book of Esther, we get some insight into his heart and and boy, as I look at that I can see a lot of comparisons to our world and our society today. I'm thankful that through it all we can see the providence of God and we can see that God is still desiring to work in us and through us and he has a plan and he's going to work his plan according to his will. Heavenly Father, we're thankful today for your goodness to us. We're thankful for this book of Esther and, and what a great story it is. And Father, how uh, we can fully put our faith and trust in you, knowing that, uh, Father, you will work things for good to them, or the call to according to uh, your will and to your plan. Father, for your purpose, I pray that you would just work in our lives, help us to be faithful in our service to you, faithful to follow you, faithful to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ is our Lord, that the world might see and know and understand their need of salvation. Father, I pray now for the service to follow. I pray that you'd speak through uh, Brother Labas; he brings the message. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. Father, I thank you and praise you for what you've done and what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your kind attention. We'll meet right back in here at 1030.